0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest introduced to you now. Nayri Masisian is an independent nutrition researcher who has no associations with the food industry, pharmaceutical industry, or any politically powered nutrition organizations. She has been involved in nutrition research since 2015, and is currently working on a book emphasizing the importance of correct nutrition for optimal health. Nairi shares her scientific information with the followers in her members-only exclusive Facebook groups, which promote the low-carbohydrate, low-insulin lifestyle as supported by scientific evidence. This is the only lifestyle, as shown by in in medical science, that prevents or reverses insulin resistance, thus drastically reducing one's chances of developing metabolic illnesses such as type 2 diabetes, obesity hypertension, heart disease, Alzheimer's, unbalanced lipids, fatty liver disease, kidney dysfunction, and even some types of cancer. The low-carb and fasting group members have free access to summarized information posts, recipes, tips, and weekly live videos. Nayuri is also the host of the Low-Carb and Fasting podcast. She is an avid gardener who grows her own food in the summer when the weather cooperates. Nayuri Messissian, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Casey. It's a it's an honor to be here.
0: It's an honor to host you. I told you offline, I think your voice is absolutely wonderful. It sounds like you're singing a song as you're talking. It's very beautiful. I love your intonation.
1: Thank you very much. That's kind of you. Thank you.
0: You are very welcome. We said you were an avid gardener, but you also live in London, so that's a pretty short growing window, um, I'm guessing. Is that, the, is that right? <laughs>
1: That's an oxymoron right there. We rarely ever see the sun. And yet I managed to grow um to grow my my own vegetables. Um I mean, if where, where there is a will, there is a there is a what do they say? What do they say? Where there is a will, there is a uh, you know, you can do it if you yeah. <laughs> if you put your mind to it. Yeah. Um,
0: where there's a will, there's, a, there's, way. A,
1: will, there's a way. That's, yep. that's the one. That's the one I was thinking of. Um it, it's i actually i love i enjoy gardening but i i started it because um uh primarily to improve my health because my diabetes wasn't improving and i thought okay must be all the uh pesticides from the vegetable vegetables i'm buying and the fruit from from the grocery stores so i'm gonna have to grow my own um this was before i discovered low carb of course so my my um uh HbA1c wouldn't come down I wasn't doing well I dreaded going to diabetes clinics because the implication was that I wasn't putting enough effort into you know improving my health and uh, little did they know that I was actually going to such extremes as growing my own vegetables because I thought this must solve the issue for me um We made pasta at home with my husband, with a a manual, the pasta machine. I mean, even pasta, we didn't buy. uh, We started from scratch, everything. I mean, I went to such extremes of waking up. I was a full-time educator at the time. um, You know, waking up 4, 4 a.m. in the morning because I had to make a loaf of bread for that day. And it needed... Uh, kneading, and then you had to leave it uh, for one hour, and then come back to it and knead it again, and then bake it. I did all of that, and yet my diabetes control wasn't getting better. So, this is—it's uh, quite funny when you know when I mentioned to people I went to such extremes um, to to improve my health, um, but nothing made a difference. When I discovered the low carbohydrate diet. It worked like magic. And so this is why I'm going to advocate for low carb, low carb diets.
0: Yeah. Well, no, that's fantastic. I used to have a garden around here and I, I really enjoyed the process of gardening. Uh, the thing I didn't like, we're kind of more in the desert than than you are in England. We're just outside of Salt Lake city. And so it can get up to you know pretty hot temperatures in the summertime. And I found that it was so much work in the beating sun in the middle of July when like you weren't getting any of your fruits or vegetables that you were trying to grow. That would only come months and months later, but it was a tremendous amount of work to get those vegetables. But I tell you what, like they produced the best tasting tomatoes so much better than than anything you can buy at the store um, and vegetables around here have been really good. Um, it just takes a lot of work to do the gardening. It's fun though.
1: It, it's fun. It's, uh, it's relaxing. It's exercise. Um, I didn't go, at, I didn't go to the gym when I was uh, uh, growing my vegetables because I just, uh, you know, that was my exercise. I I could spend hours and hours in the garden and it's hard work especially if you're keeping the garden organic, organic gardening, it's it's hard work. It's easy to just spray and kill the bugs off. I mean, we have the opposite problem of you. We don't have enough sun here. And we have so much rain that you get, you know, the vegetables, literally, I had my tomato plants one day, uh, like, Floating Like they were waterlogged. The whole garden was waterlogged. We had so much rain. And of course, with rain come all the slugs and the snails. And they start feasting on all that kale and the spinach that you thought you were going to put in your salad. So... But it's fun. It's fun uh, if you have time.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I can't think of gardens and slugs without thinking of Lierre Keith's amazing story from The Vegetarian Myth. I'm not sure if you've read that book, but her her battle with slugs to try to grow lettuce in her garden and trying all kinds of different crazy things without killing the slugs before realizing that when she went back to going back to the store, she felt really relieved because she was buying lettuce that she didn't have to kill the slugs for, but she realized at the time, like somebody killed the slugs that allowed this lettuce to grow. And so there's death on all of our hands, but I, yeah, I, anytime somebody mentions slugs and and gardens and lettuce, I always think of that story, which is hilarious and and very real at the same time. (laughs) Uh, well, we mentioned, we mentioned your lovely podcast, which I absolutely love. It's really fun to scroll through on your podcast and see so many familiar names and faces. We've talked to a lot of the same experts and, you know, really warriors out there in the low carbohydrate space. What does it mean to you to be able to create content now to share that message with others?
1: I I really cherish, I mean, it's a privilege. I'm sure you feel the same, Casey. It's a privilege to actually sit down and spend an hour, sometimes longer with people that you have tremendous respect for. And from each podcast, I come out more educated, wiser more learned. And that is something I can't put a price on. So I'm ever so grateful to every guest that obviously accepts my invitation and comes and chats with me. I have learned so much from each and every one of them. It's I look at it as a privilege. It really
0: is. It really is. Yeah, I would agree 100%. I feel exactly the same way, especially about you here with us today. You mentioned diabetes, and this is something that we talk about quite a bit, both type one and type two, which are very different diseases, which I would love to talk about. But let's, let's talk about your story with diabetes. Tell us how that came about, what, what the diagnosis was when you were diagnosed and, and kind of what things were going on in your life when all of that started
1: okay, so um i I've lived with type one diabetes for forty five years now, so I was diagnosed at five. um, I don't remember life before diabetes uh, so type one diabetes that is, so I don't remember my life before diabetes, so uh. But I remember the day I was diagnosed, and I remember being at the hospital and uh, being told I can no longer eat bread and uh, I shouldn't be eating uh, pizzas and pastas. I remember all of that, and I remember my daily battles with the injections, and I remember rebelling and resisting um, until I had to come to terms with it. I didn't understand the condition, I think I was too young. Um, But I wasn't young enough not to remember being free and waking up in the morning and not worry about injections. So <laughs> I was young, but not too young. So uh, um, it wasn't easy. I think my childhood was, I rebelled. I didn't didn't want to be diabetic. I wanted to be like all my other friends who had no worries and who weren't having injections. Um, but, um, you know, after all those years, what I think, I mean, no one is ever, you know, no one should be grateful to have a medical condition. But I, I'm so grateful to the super power, to God, to nature for actually giving me type diabetes because it's a condition I actually can't fully or at least partly control. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, compared to other medical conditions where you're completely helpless and powerless, this is a condition you can live with. You can live a healthy and normal life. You can manage it. It's not easy, but you can do it. And um, so um, I'm really grateful that this is what I have. Yeah, I can do something about it. I can live a healthy and a normal life with type one diabetes.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I want to point out something that you talked about a little bit earlier, and I've heard you share this in your story. I find this very interesting. It sounds like back then you actually were given some advice about your food. They talked about (laughs) pasta and pizza and like, what did, what did they know at the time? And then how did that change over time? I thought it was interesting. I believe it was when you went to college, you started to get a little bit different advice at that time.
1: (laughs) So when I was diagnosed, it was in the 70s, so obviously uh, early 70s, uh, no, late 70s, actually. Um, and the advice was, every. I mean, everyone knew uh, diabetics, so you had to limit your carbohydrates. I was told to limit the starches. I was told not to eat cakes. And I mean, I remember the list my mother was given and it clearly said how much bread I could have and that I should be going for whole wheat bread which takes a little longer to, to be, to, to obviously convert into glucose. Um, I remember that list and, you know, pasta and, and, and rice were to be limited and meat and eggs and cheese and other dairy products. I could have as much as I wanted and some other low carbohydrate vegetables. And, and then I've learned from, um, uh, Dr. Kevin, who is a uh, who is a diabetes specialist from the UK, uh, when I interviewed him, and it was uh, sort of an eye-opening revelation for me. And he said, everything shifted when the rapid or quick-acting insulins came into the market. And the, so this would have been in the 90s, somewhere in the 90s, late 90s, possibly. Uh, so the quick-acting insulins came into the market. And um, so the diabetes community thought, We've got this magic pill now. So we've got the perfect remedy um, for type 1 diabetics. Insulin doesn't need to you know, take about four or five hours to start having some effect on the body. It's rapid acting. It works within 20 minutes. So now we don't have to advise diabetics to, <laughs> to control their carbohydrates. They can eat carbohydrates and take this quick acting insulin to cover the glucose rise and everything will work like magic. But of course it doesn't. It doesn't work like magic because you can never tell how quickly the carbohydrate you've eaten is going to convert into glucose in your body and end up in your bloodstream, obviously as glucose. You can never tell that. I mean, your digestive system works differently every single day. So, And so so that's one sort of variable that's completely unknown. So uh, and then you can never tell how quickly exactly you can guess, but you can't tell, you can't know for sure how quickly the insulin you're taking will work. On some days, it could start working as quickly as, uh, you know, within 20 minutes. (laughs) On other days, it could take a full hour. start having some effect so so to match those two variables and they they change from day to day as well to match the two together so that the insulin effect and the glucose rise would actually just meet perfectly at the normal point i mean it's just an impossible task dr bernstein richard bernstein you may have heard of of him casey um he, he I think I heard one of his podcasts and it changed my life. And he said to constantly chase your blood sugars with insulin is an impossible task. It's not because you're a failure or you're not smart enough, you're not able to do it. No, because it is just an impossible task. It's impossible. You can't do it. You c- cannot perfectly match the two uh, together. So um and then i and then i realized uh you know all that they they'd, they'd been telling me for uh 10 15 years um and then, in fact i was clearly I, I was actually told at my diabetes clinic that I wasn't clever enough, or I wasn't being uh, proactive enough with my insulin pump that I should uh, you know, use all the different buttons and the different options on it, that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's good technology and that I should manage my diabetes better. Honestly, they didn't know how hard I was working, how, how seriously I already was taking my, my health. They had no idea. And I dreaded going to my diabetes clinic. And then I discovered bursting. And then I found out that that's an impossible task, that it's not my fault. It's just that you cannot manage the two together and match them perfectly, insulin and the glucose. Um, so this is why I follow the low-carbohydrate diet. Because if you're following the low-carbohydrate diet, um, obviously, because the carbs, carb intake is lower, your glucose rise is going to be lower and the insulin dose you're going to take is going to be lower. So yes, you still have the same problem of not being able to match the two perfectly, but because your figures are much lower, the blood sugar rise is lower. It's not a sharp rise, but it's a much lower bump. Uh, because you're limiting your carbohydrates and, and the insulin dose is small. So say two or three units of insulin work very differently, differently from 15 units of insulin, right? So it's not going to have that sharp and quick and rapid and drastic effect on you. So yes, you may not be able to match them perfectly still. And I can't, I still can't, but, but at least, at least the, the errors, margin of errors are much smaller. So you're literally playing within a very small or narrow range of blood sugars. Um,
0: That was amazing. Have I
1: answered your questions?
0: That was fantastic. Thank you. That was so well explained. I love that. I still have some questions about your personal um, story that I want to go back to, but maybe now is a good time to explain diabetes, kind of high level stuff. We can differentiate the difference between type one and type two, but for the listener, can you explain what diabetes is? What is going on? And, and you know, you're, you're throwing things out like blood glucose and, and insulin and all these terms that I think, I think most people get them really confused. They know there's an association, right? If I hear diabetes, I do think glucose. I think insulin, but it's it's harder to remember. Like, wh- is this the hormone? Do I eat insulin? What's going on? Like, can you give us a good rundown of what diabetes is?
1: Okay. So, um, diabetes is a condition where your body has become unable, and this is diabetes in general, your, bo- your body has become unable to process or metabolize carbohydrates and carbohydrates are foods uh that convert into glucose in your body so carbohydrates are um your bread and fruits as well all fruits um starches like starchy vegetables like potatoes most root vegetables are carbohydrates uh and in fact All plant foods are carbohydrates. I have to say that. But if the carbohydrate content, for example, is very low, like in cucumbers, then you're okay. You can eat that. It's not going to have a dramatic effect on your blood sugars. But all the other carbohydrates, like sugars, starches, will convert into glucose. And then your body will release the hormone insulin so your body will your pancreas actually will release insulin and insulin's job is to reach your bloodstream if you like and um remove the uh, glucose or the sugar from your bloodstream because sugar cannot stay in your bloodstream it's very toxic if it does um in fact it's fatal so um if your blood sugar rises too high um then uh, it, it could be a fatal condition. So it's it, it's it's toxic to your body. So insulin will reach out to your bloodstream, remove the glucose, and and um, um, and spread it around into your cells for energy for fuel. Glucose can be used for fuel by your cells. Now, the problem with type one diabetics is that their pancreas can not produce any insulin. So insulin is a very important, in fact, it's a vital hormone. None of us can live without insulin. So the pancreas can no longer produce insulin. The pancreas either doesn't produce any insulin or it doesn't produce sufficient insulin in type 1s. So then type 1 diabetics will have to either take injections daily injections of insulin or of course use some technology like insulin pumps which is something i use myself where um uh well i can talk about the pump pump later but so now the question your audience might be uh, wondering about is (laughs) why do type 1 diabetics no longer produce insulin well it's a type one diabetes is an autoimmune condition. I have to emphasize that. And people, most people don't know that type one diabetes is an autoimmune condition where your own body damages, mistakenly, obviously <laughs> damages your own pancreatic cells uh, that produce insulin. So the cells in the pancreas that produce insulin are called beta cells. So the beta cells produce insulin, but in type ones for Whatever reason the immune system has actually destroyed the pancreatic cells that produce insulin, thinking that they're not good for the body. <laughs> so it's 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 an autoimmune condition. So now type 2 diabetes is not an autoimmune condition. Type 2 diabetes is a completely different condition where um, where the pancreas produces insulin, in fact, in most cases, the pancreas produces too much insulin, but because of insulin resistance, because of years of hyperinsulinemia, or because of years of running very high on insulin, the cells in a type 2 diabetic person no longer respond the insulin. So insulin carries the glucose and reaches out to the cells and knocks on the cell wall to to tell them, hey, I brought you more glucose, but the cells are already overflowing. They're already full of glucose. They no longer respond to insulin. So what happens is that in a type 2 diabetic, then that glucose has nowhere to go. It can't go to the cells, because the cells are not responding to insulin. So it stays in, in the bloodstream. So their blood sugar starts rising. And then uh, obviously, uh, um, uh, <laughs> and perhaps in annual checks, in most cases in annual checks, people find out that they are diabetic because the sugar in their blood is, um, is too high. So um, because that sugar, that glucose has nowhere to go. Um, So it's a a condition, type 2 diabetes is a condition of insulin resistance, where the pancreas does produce insulin, but then the cells in the body aren't responding to insulin. In some cases, of course, if that insulin resistance lasts for a long period of time, in some cases, the pancreas gets damaged. So you get pancreatic damage in which case then the pancreas stops producing insulin too. But type two diabetes is a, a, a very diff- different condition from type one diabetes. Type two diabetes is reversible. You can put it into remission by not eating carbohydrates. If you're not eating carbohydrates, Um, then you're not going to have glucose in your body. And if your pancreas is already producing insulin, eventually your cells will start responding to the insulin. Um, So it's a completely reversible disease in most people, in most type two diabetics. Type one diabetes, there's no cure for it, and you cannot reverse it. The only way you can manage type one currently is by controlling your diet, lowering your carbohydrates and taking daily insulin injections.
0: Gotcha. Wow. You did such a good job of explaining both of those things and telling us what they had in common, but also what separates them. So can you tell us uncontrolled for both people? Like, let's go back to your diagnosis at age five. Let's say this is 150 years ago. We don't have insulin. What is the end game of that person versus the end game of type two diabetes uncontrolled? What, what ends up unfolding to the point of uh, morbidity, I guess. (laughs) Well,
1: uncontrolled type 1 diabetes, well, uncontrolled, I wouldn't say uncontrolled type 1 diabetes, untreated or type 1 diabetes without insulin. So what happened to type 1 diabetics before the discovery of insulin was um, that they would just um, wither away, literally. I mean, type 1 diabetic children, most of them were diagnosed as children. They would literally just wither away and and die. Um within a month or two, at most three. Wow. They would be in bed. They would be, end up bed bound and die within three months. Quick. Um, very quick. So um, now type two diabetics, however, even 100, 150 years ago, type two diabetics were treated with a low carbohydrate diet. Their diet was meat, eggs, butter, <laughs> dairy, um, it was in a medical, medical books. Um, you know, type 2 diabetes, people knew even a century ago that you could keep it under control or you could even put it into remission if you avoid the carbohydrates. So um, now, if obviously type 2 diabetes isn't controlled, the implications and even poorly controlled type 1 diabetes even type 1 diabetics who are on insulin, but they're not able to control their blood sugars uh, properly, uh, well, the, the complications are disastrous for both. And they're very similar, very, very similar complications. So um, neuropathy, losing limbs, um, blindness. I mean, people people younger, that, 20 years younger, the people in their 30s, are losing their sight because of uncontrolled blood sugars. Um, Of course, cognitive impairment, um, dementia, heart attack, heart disease is prevalent among diabetics, um, kidney disease. So most people, I don't know the exact number, but it's a very big percentage, like something like 80% of uh, people in, in dialysis wards are actually diabetics. So uh, every organ within your body, if your blood sugars aren't controlled, whether you're type one or two, if they're not well controlled, um, every organ will eventually fail.
0: Yeah, wow. Yeah, very good explanation. So I love when I get this question. The appointment I had just before this was a first-time consultation for a couple who's asking a lot of really good questions about some of this stuff. They're wanting to become healthier. They've been getting the standard advice for what to do to be really healthy. So go on the diet, make sure you're exercising a lot and burning lots of calories. They know that you know vegetables and fruits are the best thing they could possibly eat. And I'm kind of explaining things and picking things apart and trying to explain a different paradigm for them. And they asked me this question, which I love. I love getting this question. They're like, okay, well, then are carbohydrates bad? Bad. And it's like, no, carbohydrates are not bad. They're not innocent of themselves bad. And I used the example of gardening, which I thought was super appropriate. Like think of that garden, you're doing a lot of work to get a very small amount of food at a very seasonal time of the year. And unless you're finding some way to save that food, that food is going to go away. So it's not the carbohydrates are problematic. It's that we don't have them all all year, all the time in most places on the planet. And I've been stunned even walking around like moderate climates, places that are much warmer, like you probably would have noticed this in San Diego when you were there last year, even warm places where things are growing all over the place. Edible food is not just spontaneously growing everywhere. You kind of have to seek it out or, or plan it yourself and take care of it. And there's this whole process that comes along with it. And so it's just a different paradigm of like when we live in this world where carbohydrates are plentiful and every. Everywhere And people can have them from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed, 365 days a year for 30 years. That's the problem. Would you agree with that?
1: Completely. Yeah. My, my five cents on carbohydrates is uh, I strategically called my podcast, low carb and fasting. And I always emphasize, you know, to, to my group, um, lower carb. Don't call it low carb. Don't ask for a definition. Don't ask me how many carbs you should eat. Each person is different. Just lower your carbs. If I tell someone who's eating 200 grams of carbohydrates, you know, lower it to 20 grams, uh, the success rate isn't going to be high. It's not going to be high. But if I tell them, Hey, you can lower it like, you know, three pieces of toast. How about two pieces of toast and have another boiled egg in the morning? Like just little twist and everyone can do it and suddenly then it becomes something doable for them um and you know carbohydrate tolerance is so very different i mean i i'm a type 1 diabetic i have to manually inject insulin for every carbohydrate i eat so and and that's an impossible task. So I mean you if you're not diabetic, but but Casey, you're not, right? I mean, you your pancreas does an amazing job. Um, it it knows exactly how much insulin to produce, to regulate your blood sugars and to keep your blood sugars steady all day long. Um, I have to do that. I have to act like a working pancreas myself. I have to do that manually. It's it's a difficult task. So for me, um, I try to keep my carbohydrates as low as possible. I completely avoid sugars. Um, in fact, I, uh, I, lo- um, uh, I love the carnivore diet because that's, as close to zero carb as possible, um, but when I do eat carbs, they're usually salads and low low carbohydrate vegetables. Um, this for me it has to be my carbohydrate limit has to be very very low because I have to manage it with insulin. I have to then become my own, you know, pancreas, and that's that's an easy task. But for someone else. Um, who's, you know, otherwise perfectly healthy and fit and perhaps even, you know, 30 years younger than I am and engaged in, you know, team sports or whatever. I mean, they don't necessarily have to limit their carbs to the extent that I do. So we're all very different, right? Um, But I think as a general population, we can all benefit from lowering our carbohydrate content <laughs> um, eliminating, completely eliminating processed carbs and uh, avoiding sugar. Yeah. I mean, if we can all do that, we will all benefit. Now, how low you can go when it comes to carbohydrates is uh you know it depends on your age, your health status, etc. But we can all benefit from eliminating processed carbs, sugar, and limiting carbohydrates.
0: I love that. Now that makes it really approachable. You're right. Like people can choose how strict they want to be, how strict they can be. They might not be able to go uber strict and they might not, it might not be justified for them to do so. So I really love that approach. I want to go back to your story. So you're diagnosed as a child, you're told to avoid certain foods. How, how were you able to manage you know, you mentioned being a rebel and I'm sure you wanted all the other foods that other kids were eating at the time. How were you able to manage your insulin at that time versus the later on when you get a free pass to eat whatever you like, because we now have fast acting insulin and you can just have whatever foods you want and just make sure you dose it with insulin. How, what was the difference in the way your disease was managed? Um, okay.
1: So, um, I think it was slow acting insulin that I would take at the time and uh, or maybe even um, intermediate sort of insulin. I don't remember the exact brands, but what we would do back then was. um, Oh, when I was first diagnosed, I just remembered, I'm sorry, going back 40, 45 years now. So when I was first diagnosed, um, I. I think I only took two injections in the day. They must have been slow acting insulin. So one in the morning and one in the evening. And those, that insulin was supposed to cover all of the foods that I was eating too. And so this is why my mom, for example, when I was just playing in the yard and playing with the neighbor's children, we were active. I mean, in the 70s, kids in the 70s, we played outside. We were Uh, you know, on our bikes and climbing trees, right? Uh, This was before video games. So I'm of that generation. And My mom would panic if it was lunchtime and, you know, I I wasn't uh, within her sight. She'd come looking for me because I had to go home and eat uh, because I've already taken my insulin. So if I don't eat, then insulin will start working by lunchtime. I've taken it in the morning, start working by lunchtime. I had to have my food even at school, I remember in grade one, for example, at a certain time, in lesson time, like in class, my teacher would come in with my lunchbox and put it at the desk in front of me and tell all the children, now let's support Nairi, let's just clap for her. She's going to have to eat her lunch now so she can be healthier and something to that effect. And I would feel so embarrassed. I <laughs> hated all that attention, but she thought she was doing, doing well, obviously. Um Maybe it is a good start, but I hate it. I just, I was just so, I felt like the odd one out, but, uh, but I had to eat because I'd already taken my insulin. And then um, uh, rapid acting insulin, then uh, we were told that, you know, for your background insulin, you still take the l- slow acting insulin to keep your background level of normal basal sort of level that keeps your body functioning properly you for that kind of insulin then you can take slow acting insulin but then every time you eat you can take rapid insulin to process the foods that you're eating um and I remember having to take because we were encouraged to have snacks and in fact I I believed snacks were good I believe that you know we had to eat every two hours right I mean even 10 years ago because i Because that's what you do, right? The first thing you do is, you know, you have breakfast. And if you were crazy enough to have missed breakfast, which is what I did, then you had to to eat like mid-morning. So um, for each snack, for each meal, every time I put something in my mouth, I had to take quick-acting insulin to cover that food. Um, So that's how insulin sort of management changed. But rapid insulin really didn't solve the problem. I don't think it solved the problem. I I am on rapid insulin now, but I uh, will see my my next clinic visit to see if I can actually switch to slower acting insulin because I'm not eating carbohydrates. So the rapid insulin is really not appropriate for me.
0: Wow. Wow. Um, so interesting. Okay. So some of the stories you hear are, I mean, you can kind of laugh about them now, (laughs) mishaps that type one diabetics have, but, but they're very serious. (laughs) They're not really anything to laugh about. As you look back and kind of that second phase of your life where you were told to take on more fast acting insulin and you could eat whatever, what were some of the, the horror stories that you had?
1: Oh, uh. Horror stories were actually the uh, the the hypos, uh, we call them hypos there, but uh, actually the when the blood sugar, when you've taken insulin and um, when you have too much insulin on board and put it that way and not enough glucose, then your blood sugar will drop below the normal uh, four millimoles or uh, uh, 75, uh, 70 in your measurement, 70 milligrams over deciliters. Uh, deciliter. So, Um, when it starts dropping lower than that now that's that's not healthy either uh especially if you're a carb eater because if it drops lower it just means that if you're a carb eater that it's actually dropped very sharply from some you know himalayan highs so that sharp drop itself is disastrous on on your cognitive sort of impairment but also low blood sugars in general um are uh, uh, not uh, sort of healthy either. So one of my horror stories, actually, I remember we were at um, uh, we were at a theater in London, and I mean London is a big city, right? We walked far too much, and this is actually, I mean, it's completely my fault. I should have understood my condition better, but of course I didn't because no one, I didn't have the knowledge. Um, uh, I was in my early twenties, new to London. So we were at a theater and um, I was feeling shaky. It was fortunately towards the end and I was feeling shaky. I knew my blood sugar was um, dropping. I had no glucose tablets. I had no chocolate, nothing sweet in my bag. And I just shut up because I had a boyfriend I didn't want to say anything. It's embarrassing. And I thought uh, it might just resolve itself. You can be stupid in your uh, early twenties. I have to say, <laughs> some of the stupid things I've done or thought. I thought it might just resolve itself. But of course, towards the end, we walked out, and right on the pavement or a sidewalk, as you say, I collapsed. I was on the floor, unable to speak. I was just, just managed to tell my b- boyfriend at the time that uh, I need sugar. So it's was just running around. It's late at night, running around, trying to find somewhere that's open to bring me sugar. But I remember I was close to a bus stop right in front of me. There was a bus stop. I was uh, completely on the floor. My eyes were open. I was aware of what was going on around me, but I wasn't able to speak. Uh, it's scary. But I think the first thought that came to my mind when I was looking at people at the bus stop, they were giving me a disgusted look because, because, you know, it was a weekend and they thought I was drunk or probably drugged. But uh, but everyone was like looking at me and, uh, you know, poor, you know, she's a young girl, um, you know, she drank too much or something. And I thought, you know, any of you staying here waiting for the bus, could have something in your pocket that actually could save my, my life right now, but I couldn't verbalize, I couldn't speak. And um I think five minutes later my boyfriend appeared with uh packs of sugar from McDonald's <laughs> of all places. And and I was just and that worked within like within a few minutes, but that was probably the only horror story I would never want to, to, you know, that's never repeated itself, fortunately.
0: So. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. So when you first came across the idea of low carbohydrate diets, you mentioned Dr. Bernstein, was he your kind of introduction into that world? And when did that happen? And did you experience any kind of resistance to new information?
1: Dr. Bernstein wasn't my first introduction. Actually, I was uh, on YouTube probably uh, looking at some gardening <laughs> gardening videos. Um, and uh, I came across one of Jason Fung's uh, videos and he was talking about diabetes. And then I watched another one. He was talking about fasting. Um, and then I kept on watching more and more. And that was, I think, 2014 or maybe 2015. And I thought, this is exactly what I'm going to do. Bursting came much later. So um, I didn't know anything about Bernstein. Um, I didn't know if there were any other type ones who were lowering their carbohydrates because lowering carbohydrates is not um, such an easy task because (laughs) you're lowering your carbohydrates, you have to change your insulin management completely. You have to lower your insulin to both types of insulin, the insulin that you have to inject to cover your foods, but also your background insulin will need to go lower too because now you're becoming more and more insulin sensitive so for your background insulin just to keep you alive you don't need that much that sort of high level of insulin so now that insulin also needs lowering so it's a it's a challenging task and I started figuring things out myself uh trials and errors but um and then I discovered Bernstein. So I bought his book, and then I thought, "Wow, wow! All this wealth of knowledge out there, and I had no idea." So if I have any regrets in my life, uh, I wish I'd actually discovered a low carb way of living um, much earlier.
0: Yeah,
1: And I also wish I'd um, I'd not stayed vegetarian for thirty years.
0: Mm, that's a challenge.
1: Being vegetarian and uh, wanting to uh, be at optimal sort of health uh, was not such a good idea yeah. to work. Yeah. I tried. Yeah. I couldn't even control my blood sugar to, too well on the vegetarian di- diet. So uh, I wish I'd realized that. And, but I thought again, I thought I was doing, doing a good thing, right? I mean, this is why a lot of people turn vegan. I talk to a lot of people and they just, want to try veganism because they're fed up being sick. They want to try something that can, you know, make them healthier. People have good intentions. Um, And I'm not talking about the extremist vegans, but I'm talking about the people that at least, you know, in the type one community that I deal with, they say, you know, have you ever experienced veganism and type one diabetes? How would that work? Would that improve my health? I'm really, you know, eager to try it. but uh, it wasn't easy for me being vegetarian and um, and uh, controlling my blood sugars, so I had to switch to eating
0: meat. Yep. Yeah. That can be really challenging. I understand completely what you're saying that people have amazing intentions when they're trying those types of diets. It's just really understanding what the actual diet is going to do for human health, what it does for planetary health, what it does for the health and ethics of animals is completely different than what people think, but you're right. People are really sick of being sick. So they're going to try everything. And so once you found low carbohydrate through Dr. Jason Fung, which I have to say, he helped me so, so, so much when I was learning about this stuff, that was much later. That was like 2018 that I started noticing this stuff. And and him being able to explain why your metabolic rate doesn't crash when you start doing things like fasting was so, so important for me to understand as I was testing people's metabolic rate using a metabolic cart. So love his work and, and he really helped me along with my understanding. And I just wanna go back to what you were saying before the difference between being well managed on, on on type one diabetes means that you're using less carbohydrates and thus less insulin and those two things feed off of each other. And so if we're thinking of like an area under the curve, it's it's way flatter. It's easier to manage those two things. It's still not perfect. It's not that easy, but it's a lot easier than when you know you're eating tons of carbohydrates and you're trying to guess how much insulin and you're just kind of all over the place. What would be the difference in a given day? Like a, a day back then, how many units of insulin would you maybe be taking? How high did your blood sugar get? How low did it swing versus something like today? How, what's the difference now in a typical day for the amount of insulin that you need and wherever your blood sugar numbers are?
1: I've, uh, I believe I've reduced my insulin intake by, uh, as much as 50%, um, which is a significant reduction. Um, I probably was insulin resistant before as a vegetarian eating high carbohydrate diet so I wasn't eating fish I wasn't eating chicken so my salads would actually contain what else would they contain other than lettuce and tomatoes tomatoes (laughs) they would contain pasta right I had to put grains I had to put put starches in there because you've got to eat something right so um, to compensate for not eating meat um i was eating a lot more carbohydrates because we need to we need to eat something so it made my vegetarian diet even more challenging um so, uh, I lost track of thought now. So where were we?
0: <laughs> no, that's okay. Just the difference of the highs and lows before you were eating a lower carbohydrate diet, the, the difference between, you know, swinging wildly up and down and up and down versus today where everything's just a little bit more mellow, that must make your, that must make your entire life just so much easier.
1: I would completely swing like after a meal of uh pizza, after pizza or pasta, for example, I could go right up to, I've got the conversions right in front of me. I could easily go right, hit 280, 290 oh in your measurement. And that's like 15, 16 um uh in in the UK, 15, 16 millimoles over over a liter. So um and and no amount of insulin can, can manage that perfectly. Then I would have to take large amount of insulin because I can see I'm rising and I'm not feeling very well. So, and then you take huge amounts of insulin and within two hours, you're going to start dropping sharply. And with each sharp drop, you start feeling hungry again. (laughs) So it's, it's a disaster because it's, the, uh, the hunger that you feel then is not necessarily because you don't have enough fuel within you i mean you've just had a whole pizza right it's not because you 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 haven't had food for days no it's the hunger is a feeling that you cannot control when your blood sugars are dropping sharply so this is why high carb eaters reach out for snacks every hour or two hours because the blood sugar is dropping sharply and that sharp drop um raises levels of ghrelin and ghrelin is your hunger hormone so um and then again before my blood sugars would go back to normal i would reach out for something else another piece of fruit and so those highs and lows actually are uh are horrible it makes you feel sick you can't focus you can't concentrate it's not a normal way of life but if you don't know any different you think you put it down to age which is what I did quite often. Oh, now I've had a baby, so maybe you know it's like hormones. Oh, oh, now I've uh, oh I worked too hard yesterday, or maybe I'm just fatigued because um, because I did too much gardening. You put it down to other things, or uh, or maybe it's oh the lack of sunshine. Well, I mean that could really <laughs> impact on your health. Uh, but you start just blaming everything else going on in your life uh, if you don't understand that. It, 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 it's, it's the swinging blood sugars, which are having, which are making you fatigued or they're keeping you fatigued. So, um, I couldn't, couldn't win the battle of, you know, fatigue. It was just constant all day long. I couldn't fight it. So, um, so now my ups and downs are within a narrower range. So now when I go up to, um, six, which is 108, and then I drop down to four, which is like 72, 108, 72. That's a very small margin. And that's normal physiologically, that's a normal range for your blood sugars to be in, right? Um, no one's blood, no person's blood sugars are ever, ever uh, completely flat all day long, every single day. I mean, that wouldn't be physiologically normal. We all have highs and lows. We all we all have small bumps and lows. Uh, um, that's what I should say. I shouldn't say highs and lows, but we all have small bumps here and there. Um, and this is what I have now. Um, so it's much easier
0: to manage. Yeah. Wow. We know that Jason Fung talks a lot about fasting and that's one of your favorite um, things to talk about as well, obviously. Now, the thing you hear the most, especially with type 1, is that fasting is really dangerous. <laughs> How were you able to incorporate fasting in with what you do? And in your opinion, is fasting dangerous for type 1 diabetics?
1: It can be. Of course. I mean, type 1 diabetics are taking uh, insulin, right? And if um, if you're taking insulin and you're not eating, you're fasting. What fasting does is it turns you, makes you insulin sensitive, so your insulin requirement drops down even more. So you have to know, you have to understand what your background in insulin is, how much insulin you need every single day, um, every every single day that you're fasting. Obviously, I'm talking about extended fasts to keep you alive, to keep your blood sugars steady or as steady as possible. Um, and that's that's a difficult task because if you're eating, your insulin needs rise. I mean, even on a carnivore diet, right? Which is your zero carb diet. For a carnivore diet, I still need insulin to cover the food. I still need to take insulin to cover uh, the meat that I've just had, the steak and eggs, for example. Um, but I don't take as much insulin as I would have taken for a meal of or bowl of pasta. Um, but when you're fasting, it's actually quite traumatic. It's within, I would say, um, Eight hours, you notice the difference that your body is becoming more insulin sensitive. So your background insulin, obviously, you're not taking any insulin to cover your food because you're fasting. You're not eating any food. But now you have to focus on the background insulin, the basal insulin that keeps you functioning normally, that keeps you alive. Now, that insulin also will need reducing. Now, that's a challenge because people usually don't touch that that insulin. Don't tweak that. They don't need to. All they worry about is how much insulin do I need for that plate of food? Um, and that's a difficult challenge in itself, right? It's not easy to handle that. So people usually don't look and review their background insulin. But now if you're fasting, that is the insulin you're going to have to review. You don't have the other insulin, you don't have the quick uh, bolus insulin uh, for your meals, but your background insulin will also need reducing. Um, and if you're doing extended fast, for example, um, so if, if say, if you're on 10 units of insulin, background insulin on the first day, you might only need to reduce it to, I don't know, eight units. And now on the second day, now you're, you've passed the 24 hours of fasting, your body's even more insulin sensitive, that eight units will be too much for you. So you're going to drop, your blood sugar is going to drop too low. And so you're going to have to be prepared to lower on the second day of fasting to lower your background insulin from eight units to, say, six units. So by day five, which is the longest I've done five day fast, um, um, you might find that you're only requiring about four units of background insulin or five. But you do need to take insulin. So um, it's important without insulin. So our aim isn't just to, to be on zero zero insulin. We need the hormone insulin. And we also need to make sure that our blood sugars are um, uh, uh, sort of normal and steady. Yes, you're going to have uh, highs. You're going to have lows, even when you're fasting, because your background insulin At the end of the day, you're managing your background insulin. It's not your pancreas managing it. So uh, we can't replicate a pancreas 100%. So your background insulin might still cause some rises and lows, but it's fine. You just, you know, if if your blood sugar is dropping too low, I would say take a glucose tablet and continue to fast. It doesn't break your fast. The glucose tablet is actually to bring your blood glucose level back to normal. So you're just like anyone else who's non-diabetic and fasting. So now you're in your normal blood sugar range, keep on your fast. So it doesn't actually, cause it's not food you're digesting. It's actually there to save you, bring you back to normal level, and you can continue to fast. So, cause a lot of type one diabetics tell me, well, I dropped too low, and then I decided to have a meal because that's it. That's the end of the fast. And I said, no, just take a glucose tab, bring your blood glucose back to normal range and fast.
0: Yeah. That's a really, that's a really great way to think of it because yeah, you would get that confused if you didn't know any better. So I really love the way you explained it that way. I love the way that you are out helping so many people. Tell us about your Facebook groups and why you decided to start those.
1: Um I have a number of well, well my, my favorite face, <laughs> I love all my groups, but my favorite Facebook group is the type one group because I don't think type 1s have as much of a voice in in social media as as you know type 2 diabetics. Um so, and type 1 di- di- diabetes isn't uh well understood by by the general public either. And so I'm very passionate about helping people in my type one group. Um and uh, you know, we share ideas about how to reduce your insulin and and we emphasize the safety aspect because you asked me if it can be dangerous. Yes, it can be. If you're not managing, if you don't have glucose tablets, which I carry around with me all the time, it's a dextrose tablet, right? Um, you can be in danger anytime, whether you're fasting or not. So fasting can be dangerous. If your blood sugar drops too low, you have too much insulin on board and and you don't have a treatment with you, then yes, of course, it's, you know, it's disastrous. You could end up like I ended up on the floor, <laughs> and, um, you know, wondering what's happening, why you couldn't, can't, can't speak. So um, it's actually fatal. So it's it's not a joke. So it's not, um, and also, you know, I tell my group, Casey, everyone is passionate about fasting, but it's not a race. If someone in the group posts that they fasted for three days, It doesn't mean you also have to fast for three days. Hey, it's challenging for you. Fast for 12 hours, but fast for 16 hours because you still benefit from it. Your body still becomes insulin sensitive um, even after 16 or even less, 14 hours of, of, of fasting. So it's not a race. It's not a competition. Who's on the lowest carbohydrate diet? This isn't a competition. We're not really competing against each other Um, we have to work uh, together as a community so I'm very passionate about my top one group we're all on keto ketogenic diet um, and uh, we all do some level of fasting be it intermittent or extend
0: it. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. It sounds like exactly the resource that you didn't have early enough that would have really, really helped you. We love the carnivore diet around here. For me personally, I believe, truly believe that I found the last diet that I will ever be on. So I'm going to ask you that same question. Being a former vegetarian, now a carnivore adjacent, at least very much animal-based, do you ever plan on changing your foods that you eat on a daily basis today?
1: It's working for me. So unless it stops working for me, I won't consider a change. It's working for me. Uh, I love it. I love the strength, the carnivore diet or a keto, or I should say, maybe that's even better because I do include some vegetables every now and again. Um, I love my diet. It's working for me. So I'm not considering a change. At the moment, (laughs)
0: that's great. I'm going to steal this question from Sean Baker. He said he asks this question all the time on his podcast. It's like let's let's just assume that people who are carnivore advocates are wrong about something like cholesterol. Let's just say we have this entire cohort of people that's heading right off a cliff of, of heart attacks coming up in the next year or two or whatever it is. And his question to those people is: Let's say we're wrong about cholesterol. Let's say we're wrong about heart disease. All these things that we think we understand really well would would that even be enough for you to get off the carnivore diet and and he says and reports that a vast majority of people say absolutely not i don't care like if 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 i could live the way that i was living and manage the things that i can manage like this and say i'm wrong about heart attacks or whatever i would still eat this way would that be the same answer that you would give
1: i would follow the science <laughs> i would follow the science so if there is scientific evidence that this way of eating um, is not conducive to good health, I would follow the science, but so far, we don't have that science. In fact, we have scientific evidence to show the, the opposite, to show that carnivore communities around the world, globally, uh, are thriving. Yep. And they're mostly disease-free. Yep. So, um, if that changes in the future, sure, I will follow the science, but I'll, I don't think that science is out there just yet. So I'm happy with the diets I'm following.
0: I agree. Now that's a wonderful answer. And somebody like you who we mentioned in the introduction is just so unbiased and is willing to question lots of different things and really be careful about the things that you call science and really look into the way studies are conducted and what headlines say about certain diets that comes out all the time that based on really, really, really terrible quote unquote data to make a quote unquote study, which is really just a headline that grabs everybody's attention. Like this whole other cohort of people is so, Careful about doing the right research, looking into the science, and coming up with just wonderful things in the carnivore community. So, um, I love the questions. I've really loved this discussion today. Where can people go to find you and connect with you and your work?
1: Okay, the website is uh, lowcarbonfasting, all one word.com. Um, and um, on the website, I have links to all the social media uh, platforms. And also to the uh, links to the private um, Facebook groups. And my email address is there too. And um, also, Casey, I have free uh, blood sugar conversion and HbA1c conversion uh, charts, free to download uh, for anyone. So you don't need to carry a calculator with you. So all you do is just download it on your phone or you can have a printout just like this, have it on the fridge door and you always, because quite often we hear podcasts and people come from obviously uh, experts from different parts of the world. They're using different measurements. So I always have, um, <laughs> even now after all these years, I always have my reference with me It's on my fridge door. So. Um, it's free to download. I can share the link with you. So maybe we can put it in the description.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. We'll definitely put that in the subscription. I was actually just on your website and saw that. That is very helpful. And it's cool to see all those numbers. Mary, thank you so very much for everything that you've done. You've gone through a lot of challenges in life and come out the other side with really good information. And I just, with you, I don't only see all the research you're doing and everything that you're sharing and, and, you know, all the information you're gathering, but, but you're so passionate about getting this message out and it is so important. And I think, again, you have an opportunity that you never had to get the right information to the right people much earlier than you did. So thank you so very much for everything that you do. And thank you for taking time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you.
1: Casey, I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: You are very welcome. It was an honor. And this has been another episode of balanced body radio. Thank you, as always, so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. We really have such a passion for this work and for sharing our message. I've always said this, and I still believe it, that if I were to win the lottery today, that I would still show up for all of my clients and continue this work starting at 6 a.m. next Monday. It's just really a joy to be able to work with people and share our message and to be able to share this message with people all over the world, be able to interview all kinds of different doctors and researchers or just everyday people to share their stories and literally inspire hundreds of thousands of listeners to our show. Last year, we decided to start our Patreon page to be able to share premium content for a subscription fee, which included private coaching, early releases of our podcast, which was unedited, and also my special project of making the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast, which is basically the highlights of all of the hundreds of episodes that we have done, all condensed down into a masterclass of a particular topic, including different macronutrients and also ketogenic diets. The subscription model uh, really wasn't exactly a smash success to say the least, but I did put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into those episodes. And I'm really just not that comfortable with them sitting around behind a paywall when they could be out helping people. So we have decided to terminate our Patreon page. I will be releasing all of the content that we created for the boundless body radio premium podcast on our normal show Boundless body radio for free. So be on the lookout for that in the coming months and be sure to leave any feedback you might have. If you enjoy them, we'd really love to hear from you. They were really fun to make, and I really enjoyed reviewing all of our content to create them. But like I said, if they're not out there helping people, I'm just not really okay with that. And I really want them to get out and help. So, remember that you can always book a free complimentary 30 minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. We've really enjoyed connecting with people all over the world to discuss all things health and fitness. And so, feel free to do that and take advantage of that. And as always, thank you again so much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.